You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, Spine Number 31, the Friday the 13th franchise, featuring machetes, mongoloids, soothsayers, Savini, Speedos, boobs, bikinis, Kevin Bacon, Hicks, Hot Twins, Outhouse Karaoke, Enchiladas, Strip Monopoly, Child Psychology, Zombie Mongoloids, Corey Feldman, and Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. Martin? Yes? Where's the goddamn corkscrew? Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to kill some teenagers? Always. I am really excited to talk about these movies. I like that you were like, I'm always ready to kill teenagers. <laughs> so. I'm always ready to talk about these movies, I'll say. But uh, we also have a special guest with us, uh, the Secret Handshake and newly minted uh, Fangoria contributor, Brandon Strusnig. Brandon, how are you? How is Pittsburgh? Uh, I'm great, and Pittsburgh's uh, nice for once. Uh, usually, it's like 90% gray here, and it's actually pretty sunny and nice out, so I can't complain too much. Always good to hear. I miss the East Coast, like hardcore. Being an Austin yeah. transplant is kind of hard, especially when you like you realize there's no seasons. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. We uh, the last few years we've only had like two seasons. It's been like gray and wet or snowy, but uh, the sun the sun's kind of peeking back out again finally which is nice sweet so we're here to talk about the friday the 13th franchise and to be frank boys i don't even know where to begin because this feels like a string of movies that's almost baked into my dna i know it's certainly baked into martin's dna <laughs> so maybe we start with you brandon where or when or how did you first stumble upon friday the 13th and how did that kind of uh become part of your life because I damn well know. Uh, it's, it's weird because I, I think out of like the three big slasher franchises, it was always my least favorite. Um, and I, I don't think I ever fully appreciated how weird it becomes. I, I kind of wrote it off for a while. And then over the last year or so, I've done like a slow rewatch of all of them. And I, I don't know if this is a bad opinion, but I, I still can't get on board for the first three, but as soon as four hits, like I'm just like all in. And I, I feel like I've over this last year really started to appreciate it more. And it's actually become, I, I like it just as much as uh, the nightmare and Halloween movies, especially how weird the run is between. Well, I wouldn't say weird, how good the run is between four and six. And then how weird it gets after that. Just like, it's probably the most bizarre out of all the slasher franchises. 
but uh yeah it i i don't it, I, i've always like you know everyone's been aware of jason forever so i've always kind of like known these movies and and seen and, and had seen them before but it, they they weren't really for me until very recently and now i'm kind of just like i love them so yeah it's kind of my story with them that very recent uh full-on convert i think i started watching these at roughly like 11 or 12 years old like i can't even remember these like especially the first eight like paramount movies yeah like if you had hbo at all as a kid which i did like they were always on late night cable and i remember noting like old copies of tv guides like when you know jason takes manhattan or the new blood or even uh new beginning was a one that was always on like late night cable and on hbo because like before that they were vhs like video store movies for me that like you you know watched with an older brother or your neighbors like your buddies in the neighborhood like their uh, older brothers they always had like copies of them and would be like oh yeah you got to see this fucking one it's crazy there's boobs everywhere and this one guy gets his like head cut off and this other guy sings in an outhouse about like enchiladas and shit and like that became the way i grew up with them and then they almost took on a second life with me when I started going to repertory screenings, especially the exhumed film stuff in Philly and New Jersey, because I think I've seen every one, no, every one now that I think about it on 35 millimeter in one form or another. Um, so then I got this weird, like through my twenties kind of reappreciation of them. And then even moving down to Austin, it was crazy. I would see the same print, <laughs> a Friday the 13th part two that I saw up in the Northeast. And I'm sure because I've seen part four final chapter four or five times in the theater, like a lot at this point. So they almost just became part of like my movie going experience. And like also the way that I taught myself to keep reevaluating films as I got older, because at first they were like sleepover classics. And then in my twenties, I was like, well, I wouldn't go as far as to call these good, but like, I think they're really interesting and fucking strange. I am fascinated, Brandon, by the fact that you don't like the first three. Now, I don't <laughs> think the first one's that great, but I think number two is like possibly my favorite of the whole franchise. Oh, no, it's just weird because like, I don't dislike them. I, it, it's hard to explain. Like, I, I think. It, I think that there's a really good ideal Friday movie in the first three like combined and we'll get to this and i think that's why i love the remake so much because it kind of does that um but it, it's weird like I, I i don't dislike them but i just they i, I like the weirdness more and i like the kind of like how out there these get and those ones feel more like straight up uh slashers and those are just never really been the ones I gravitate to. And I, I think two probably is the best of the original three, just because it, it, it feels the most like, like a uh, campfire tale almost. Um, and I, I like that a lot, but um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but it's just like, I, I'm always into this, into these when they get like a little more out there, a little more creative. And I feel like that one two is probably the most competent, of the three in terms of just being a straight up slasher movie, but it's just never been one that I've like 
really dug on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I we'll get to two, and I'm I'm with Jacob that uh, it's it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Um, real quick, I'll give my my backstory um, with these films, and uh, this kind of ties in what we're talking about, though. Um, I didn't see the first one, which is the first I saw until I think I was 11. And I had a friend uh, from Japan. He was a uh, um, his parents. They had all moved there for a couple of years to Franklin, Indiana, and they would rent us whatever we wanted. I'm in fifth grade, and she, they rented us Friday the 13th. And for years, I had made up what the movies were in my head because I'd go to Half Price Books. Were these actual Japanese people? Yeah, uh, Solichiro Yamashita. Um, we just we just uh, reconnected on Facebook, which is super cool. Um, one of my good friends in elementary school. You have such a bizarre childhood. Yes, ab- absolutely. <laughs> um, but I, it was funny. I would go and I was a very, uh, I'd say, creative younger kid. And I would look at the backs of these movies uh, at the video store at Half Price Books. And I would make up the stories of what happened in them because my parents wouldn't let me see them. Uh, they wouldn't rent me horror movies. And and we didn't have cable, so I didn't have the option, like you said, Jacob, staying up late and catching part three or four or five on cable. Middle school was my Friday 13th era, though. Uh, I think I've mentioned him before on this podcast. My my best buddy in middle school, Justin Edwards, also his mom would rent us whatever. And we worked our way from two up through Jason Goes to Hell. And we watched, like, Summer Party Massacre. It's when I saw all, like – all the slasher films, every side ancillary film we could get our hands on. Um, this Halloween is my favorite horror film, the original. But my my favorite franchise always and will ever will always be this franchise. This is my favorite slasher franchise. Um, I came late to Freddy. I saw Freddy one and three, and I watched the others like in college. It was weird. I kind of came to those late, um, but I've always been a, a Jason guy. See, I was a Freddy guy at first. I was especially during my teenage years, like I was always like the nightmare movies are more cinematically creative and visually kind of weird and out there. And then the Friday movies are basically just pornos with a machete instead of a big dick. And it was like as a kid, I was just kind of like, ah, the, the this Freddy thing, this is way cooler than what Jason's doing. And then I realized as I got older that like. I kept coming back to the Friday the 13th movies because like they were so easy to watch and like, especially as they went along and maybe that's why I like the first three as much as I do is that you can kind of feel them figuring out like, you know, cause the first one famously was just an act of sheer exploitation. Yes. Like Sean Cunningham was like, Oh man, Halloween's making all this money. Let's rip it off. They take out that huge variety ad. No script yet. No script. Promise like the bloodiest movie of all time. And then end up going and shooting this like cheapy little horror movie that ends up becoming like a bona fide like sensation, you know? And then being creatively kind of stuck with that legacy all of a sudden being like, and a studio coming up because again, they were independent movies that like Paramount didn't finance these because they didn't really want their name on them at first. So they would had like almost like a back end deal of being like, okay, you deliver us a Friday the 13th movie. We'll put it out profit shared, yada, yada, yada. So then all of a sudden they have Paramount coming 
even as disreputable as they found the franchise being like, hey, we want more of this because they just print money. So like all of a sudden Cunningham and everybody involved are like, well, how the fuck? Like nobody expected to make these movies. So they're kind of just riffing as they go along and inventing a formula that at the same time would be just incredibly ripped off by B, C and Z grade slashers like in the moment. So all the way up through three, you kind of get this vibe of like, shit, what do we do? You know? And I think that's why I like two so much is because it almost feels like jazz in a weird way to where it's like, (laughs) okay, well the mom dies at the first one. Uh, I guess the kid comes back, but he has like a bag on his head and wants to avenge her. But what if we just get the same fucking kids? But here's the thing with two, it's kind of like a glow up because all the women are hotter. They're like maybe a the little hottest. Better. Oh, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, in a little bit. the two has my <laughs> ultimate crushes of all time. Me too. Yeah, that's but, why we're friends. Oh, my God. But like. Uh, they're kind of going, okay, so we have this mongoloid and he just kills people and he puts a bag on his head. Sweet. And then the second one makes a shitload of money and they're like, oh, fuck, what do we do now? I guess make it in 3D. And like you can feel that all the way up to through final chapter because I still – one of the things I really like about final chapter too is that like it feels like they're trying to put a period to the end of the sentence. Like, it actually feels like they're like, okay, we're going to kill Jason here. And like, this is it. Like, we're going to do other stuff now. And then that movie makes a bunch of money. And so it just kind of keeps, it's almost like an exquisite corpse uh, way to construct a franchise that I've always been fascinated with. And like, as a kid, I was always into it just for the blood and the boobs. And as a grown man, I'm also into the blood and the boobs as well. (laughs) But I'm into like knowing how these movies are made now and knowing how production works and everything, it adds a whole other kind of layer of being like, man, you guys were really just doing a thing here. And it was kind of unprecedented at the time. Uh, Brandon, I like your point about, I like that you don't like part. You didn't connect with one, two, and three. Um, I also, I love those so much because they're so boilerplate at the same time. And my one of my favorite slashers is fucking final exam, which is as boilerplate <laughs> as you can get. Like they literally made it. They said, take even more than Friday the 13th. They took the structure of Halloween and just did it. And they that was like their entire like MO for making the final exam. And so I love that it's like this completely pared down thing. Um, and I love how he doesn't even have a name in that one. Isn't he just called killer? He's just the killer. Yeah. yeah. He's just basically Anton Chigurh, like bull cut killer. And, um, but I've always liked, there's a charm to me to one, two and three of what you said, Jacob of like flying by the seat of their pants. Um, but I also have always thought what I like about the first three is I think they're what created the slasher film. Like everyone gives credit to Halloween, but like there are so few deaths in blood in Halloween, especially the first one. And like, I remember reading this, this uh, article in college by Cynthia Freeland about like slasher films have, no, have horror numbers versus musical numbers that it's just like interstitial scenes to lead to the porn analogy the scene where, you know, there's the fucking, this is the scene where they get torn apart. And I think that Friday the 13th got that down to a science um, by number four. Well, Tom Savini was like your ultimate money shot guy too. If you just wanted, you know, bloody jizz everywhere to keep (laughs) this terrible porno analogy, like he was the guy to do it. 
Uh, yeah, I. That's actually a really good point. Um, because when you think of like all the slashers that came after, they do kind of fo- follow Jason's model more than Halloween and more than, especially more than Freddy, because Freddy's like so high concept. Um, but yeah, uh, I think I respect the first three more than I actually like them because, like, like you said, Jacob, I kind of grew up more on Freddy, and I I always liked Michael more than Jason and so I was always kind of gravitating towards those but I think I can say now that most of the Halloween movies don't even measure up to either of the other franchises like the, getting through Halloween's kind of a slog not not the original Halloween but just the, the series is kind of a slog so I don't really know what I was thinking back then I think I just liked his look but um I uh, I it's only recently that I've really come around on Jason and like I said and I I think like like Jacob you just sold me on kind of giving these first three another go uh well both of you have but but just describing the second one as jazz is is really great and i kind of want to give it another go now uh, with that uh lens because it it, i I just don't i I don't know how to to say it without sounding like because it's such a horrible complaint but especially the third one just feels very dull to me um and and I love Jason's look in the third one, but so much of that movie is just them holding things out in front of the camera to get the get the 3D effect. And it's like there's like prolonged scenes of people just holding like a a baseball in front of the camera for like what feels like 20 minutes, and yes. you're just like, come on, get to the firework factory. And um, but uh, yeah, it it it's by four, which is weird because they wanted to like you said put the period on the franchise by four, but by four it feels like they finally have like nailed it. And I, I always four is high up in my ranking, but I, I think that that's like the ideal Friday movie for me. Um, they hit their like, stride there for sure. Yeah. Their stride. Yeah. I will say this, like watching three on just standard 2d, like Blu-ray in your living room is Weird, like I, that movie has a lot of defenders and a lot of people who are like really love it, but I do see the complaint with it because a lot of it is so goofy of like just sticking things in the camera, the yo-yo gag where it's like hitting the girl in the face <laughs> and stuff like really Popcorn. stupid. I will say I did get to see it in the late nineties in actual like silver screen 3D with the the real glasses and everything and like the effect. Like, you got it. You were like, I, I understood why this was a huge hit. And also, frankly, why old school 3D will always be better than the new school bullshit that we get now. Yeah. Because, like, they 100% lean into the gimmick. Where, like, when you take the gimmick away, the actual technology, and you watch it at home, like, all of a sudden focus. you just have, like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and that's the other thing is, like, half of those scenes are just clearly nobody knew how to use the three lenses <laughs> and stuff because they're way out of focus and hazy and weird. And it adds almost like a level of unintentional, like surrealism to the whole thing. But at the same time, you're like, it also highlights how incompetent these movies were. And again, we're flying by the seat of their pants by people who barely knew how to make movies. It, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the whole point of this podcast secret handshake is the personal connection we have to these movies. Right. And for me, like, Three is tied in. I had a babysitter who rented me this and Halloween six. Uh, Curse of Michael Myers, same night. And we got fucking Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and so I can't separate 
that night. Her favorite movie was Broken Arrow, which I think is the coolest thing ever. Oh, that's and, awesome. And, um, was your babysitter Gina Gershon? <laughs> she was, like, <laughs> super fucking cool. And, uh, but for me, I, I think I was, like, I think I was 12 when I saw this one. And I was just, like, I, I watching it this time for the pod, like, just rewatching it. Ah, that's fucking how many times I've seen this. It's a slog until the killing starts. If you take the 3D out of it, but it's partly because like two and four are so fucking good. It has the misfortune of taking place between two of my favorite of the series. Well, and the other thing too is like, and this will be a good transition into the original Friday the 13th is the fact that like, it's one of the ultimate representations of our theory, Martin, that these movies are hangout movies before yes. anything else. Like if you took the murder out of Friday the 13th, you would almost have like a Richard Linklater movie Absolutely. because it's just spending time in the sun in upstate New York with these kind of wayward kids as they, they're figuring out what they want to do and get high and like fuck each other the whole time. But like then somebody just happens to show up and murder the shit out of them. So it's like, it's really weird because that I think was one of the biggest notes or pieces that the rest of the series had to learn how to translate properly is that like, we have to introduce actual kids and characters that you want to hang out with. And not all of them do the best job at that. Well, and not to jump ahead, but, I mean, but like for, I think the, one of the reasons beyond it just being a well-structured slasher, but, but connected to that, has the most fun group of teens that have every single person has a little bit of backstory, something they want from that night. And, and then you have Sabini coming back to do some of the best kills in the entire series. Like what more do you want from a slasher film? Um, and three is that weird. Like you kind of mentioned when we were texting, like it's very stoner comedy as well. I mean, half the group is like smoking weed the entire time and they're trying to play that up. I don't think it plays too well. We're kind of jumping around, but I think five, uh, I think I told you this recently, Jacob, your letterbox uh, log actually, like I read that before rewatching five and it kind of like recentered five for me. I, you called it, um, you, you called it a morally diseased slasher in the best episode of Scooby-Doo and watching it under that lens. I was like, it, it became one of my favorites. It's like way up there for me. I love five, like speaking of like the hangout vibe and like, teens you want to hang out with i love the cast in that movie um i, I like I, I re-watching it i was obsessed with deborah Voorhees. Um, oh my god yeah and that movie just feels like it, it it feels like so disreputable and and just like it's like so candy colored and like they just feel like they literally are making a porno out in the woods and it just in and then you have the mystery aspect of who well who is this behind the mask if jason died in the last one and I think that movie gets such a bad rap and I think people only don't like it because of the ending, but I don't think that that really matters because the rest of that movie is just such a blast and it kind of captures everything that you're describing about what I ended up liking about these movies as they went along is like just hanging out with like a really like shitty group of teens and then watching them all get picked off and, and it's just so bloody and, and colorful and exciting. And I just, that one I love a lot. And I think that that one, is like kind of my ideal Jason movie, just in terms of like what you're describing and being like a campfire hangout story, you know? Well, by all accounts, five was basically a porno because it was 
directed by Danny Steinman, a guy who actually made porno before that. Right. Yeah. He made Savage Streets as well. And like all really grungy, gross. Uh, he also made a movie called The Unseen, I believe, where I also had a mongoloid in it uh, in the basement. <laughs> it was played by Flounder from Animal House. Uh, pretty good movie. And who, Barbara who, Rock is in it, too. It's funny because Flounder kind of looks like Joey, who's killed in part five. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, five is one of my favorites, too. And let's just give ourselves over to jumping around. I think like we're, we're kind of doing that here. If that's cool. Um, but I think that what I like about five twos, I, it's one of my, that's honestly top three, not to get ahead of ourselves is, um, that it feels like a return to early Sean Cunningham produced films like last house on the left. Oh yeah. It's really mean. Like that's the death, really, yeah. the death, the deaths aren't as like on the nose, like, gory as what Tom Savini could produce, but the idea of what happens to, to men and women, these kids who are troubled teens at a halfway house is so fucked up. It is mean. Well, and it reminds me of another Cunningham movie that he made called the new kids. Very like much. The yeah. Down South kind of slasher where James Spader is that like bleach blonde, like neo-Nazi, like neo-Nazi <laughs> rapists and it all, the, that whole finale that takes place in like the refurbished fun land and everything. Santa land. Yes. Yeah, Santa land. <laughs> or is it Christmas land? Christmas land. Christmas yeah. land. Sorry. Yeah. But it's like, I apologize. It's, but it has the same kind of mean spirited ethos to where anybody could die. Like they kill the parents in the first two minutes. Spoilers, I guess, if you haven't seen this 40 year old movie, but like, um, Cunningham. Yeah. That was the thing about him is that he kind of always felt unsafe or unhinged because he came from that world of like cutting together, I guess what they were called uh, couples movies back then. And then giving Wes Craven a camera to make last house on the left. And then even making his own kind of gross brand of disreputable slasher and, and minting one of the most successful slasher franchises ever. He, again, it feels like as it goes on, it's almost like, okay, well, Jason's dead. We reboot this, but what do we got to actually give them to keep like the butts in the seats? And it's like, again, tits and violence and five like delivers in a way that's like almost you feel bad watching it. It's one yeah. of the, it's probably the biggest bad vibes Friday out of the entire franchise. Because also like, again, by all accounts, everybody was on blow and then there were like 10 minute fuck scenes that were actually cut out of the movie. And then at the same time, like he, like Steinman, we kind of fished around to try and find more info on this, but like Steinman as part of his pitch to bring it back to your, your idea about early Cunningham is that he landed a two picture deal with Paramount Friday five was the first. And then he was supposed to make last house on the left part two, where Krug came back either as like a ghost or a zombie. He just never died, I guess, or a zombie unclear because I don't think the actual script was ever written, but Krug and David Hess actually signed on. I found an interview where he talked about the movie and he was like, well, his response was basically like, well, I'm, I'm working in Europe a lot now. So like, yeah, sure. Of course. If the, like, this is a studio movie. If they call me and are like, come play this iconic character. I already made sure I'll come back and just take the paycheck or whatever. But like, apparently it was supposed to be Krug hunting uh, kids at a summer camp. So it was more or less like a, a Friday the 13th uh, sequel just under the last house name. 
I would pay um, to see that. Yeah, me too. Like he's he's uh, Steinman's perfect for a Last House movie based off of this one. Like that 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 would have been kind of amazing just because like the like you said the the vibes are just so fucked in this movie and <laughs> and Jason 5 or Friday 5 cuz cuz it's not Jason spoilers but uh um but yeah uh it, it's also weird you brought up how Cunningham kind of has has like a unhinged like vibe to him and like that that kind of translates to the whole series and it's really fun watching actual filmmakers try to like marry their sensibilities to that and and i think that's where you get the most interesting ones like steinman like his vision being married to that is kind of perfect and then i think uh having joseph zito do four is is really interesting because he i'd say he and um and uh tom mclaughlin are like the two like actual filmmakers in this franchise and it's it's always interesting to me watching them try to put their sensibilities on such a bizarre series because you get like i think you get some of the best movies out of it um especially with what zito does yeah zito i mean like he i've seen him i watched like every fucking special feature about this movie and he was saying the number one thing was to like make the characters more realistic and like give them a backstory so when they die you actually give a shit right instead of having them be like you know, fodder for Jason's machete. Um, I, I think that, but he still keeps a little bit of the meanness there too, that he has in his other films. Um, McLaughlin goes like full fucking Gothic, like James whale. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I, one of my biggest regrets right before COVID, I was at a horror convention in Bastrop, Texas Tom McLaughlin was there by himself and no one's talking to him. <laughs> and I was just, I would have walked over and been like, just got a signature or something. He, he looked like a really nice, I've heard he's a very nice person, but I think six is, it's funny. You go from five, which is probably one of the meanest of the series. Six is one of the nicest. It feels yeah. like in a lot of ways, it's the most like all my friends who don't like horror. That's the one I show them is I usually show them six. My brother doesn't, he's not as horror as I am. Love six. My best buddy from high school, love six. So that seems to be the most approachable. Well, and like five's meanness feels like an extension of, or at least a uh, amplification of fours because four yeah. is pretty mean yeah. too, because it's funny that like Joe Zito is talking about, like I wanted to make the more like the kids more relatable. I mean, this is the guy who had Chuck Norris shot, like shoot off Richard Lynch's dick in invasion <laughs> USA and was like, and was making like the mission and in action movies for Canon. And like, these are almost anti-human like action spectacles that nobody liked in the eighties. And now like we all love them, but like it's, he also was like one of the classic exploitation kind of workmen that slotted himself in worked with Savini, obviously on like the prowler and then was able to produce something that like he, he got what, uh, the studio wanted or like what the franchise needed. It was like, okay, well I have this element. I have this element and I have this element. How do I turn that into like, as Brandon kind of put it, like the ideal uh, or the platonic, like ideal, like Friday movie. And I think that's why four is almost universally recognized as the best. I think 
that's not yeah. safe to say. Yeah, I've always heard it's either four or six that people usually hold up. As, and it's funny because, like you said, it's like one of the meanest and one of the nicest. And it's funny that those two are held up as like two of the best. Yeah, it's weird that you get like you again with four is they're going to end it with the woman. They finally figure out the like the formula and they're like, OK, now we got to kill Jason. And five is like, OK, let's do like I said, the Scooby Doo, like very mean spirited thing. They I thought there's never two films in a row where they're on solid ground. It always feels like reaction to the one before. Or do you know what I mean? I don't feel like there's ever two in a row where it's like, we know what we're doing. Let's go with it. One and two is pretty close. Like, because yeah. Minor worked, you know, Steve Minor worked on the first as like an associate producer and like production assistant, mm-hmm. more or less, which on that level of production means he did everything. Yeah. And then translated those skills to actually getting promoted and making part two and then three <laughs> and then three two. that the funny thing is is that one and two feel of a piece and then three feels kind of like the point in the franchise where what you guys are talking about happens is that it it almost becomes pure exploitation to where it's like three's 3d four is like we tell them it's the final chapter it's the big culmination five is like oh fuck what do we do we reboot this and then six starts the zombie mongoloid chronicles with Jason because you have six, seven, and eight. Yeah. All in there. Not well, Jason goes to hell is something else that we'll get to in a second. And then ten is <laughs> we Robo Jason. To. Um, but I mean, like, you have a schism there. Like it, it's crazy because and that's where my kind of jazz analogy comes in, is that minor might be the ultimate example of the guy who's like, oh fuck. I just did this because it was a job, and now I got to do a third one. I, what are people into now? 3D, I guess? It's so weird. Is Minor the only director who worked in two franchises? Because he did Halloween H2O, and he did two and three of, of uh, Friday the 13th. Right. I think he's the only. When he made I, Lake I, Placid, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's amazing. I think and he is the only one. Yeah, he that only crossed streams. Unless you with, count. Well, unless you count the remake, because uh, Marcus and the Spell worked on the, oh, the series Texas and uh, yeah, Texas, yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I would say him and, and Steve Miner, um, but he he also I think is a better director than Cunningham. Cunningham is just like not For sure, as much yeah. of a filmmaker. We talked about this during our uh, Leviathan Deep Star Six episode. Is Pacing wise, and it's a script thing too, but like we call it the kind of coming him trick where it's just like a lot of hanging out and like, yeah, but he always pays off with like the big, you know, ending. I think of like the first one, if I had to say like one of my least favorite scenes in the entire series is Alice making fucking instant coffee in oh the first God. movie. Yeah. And it's supposed to be suspense, but she's literally, it's like a six minute scene <laughs> of her making instant coffee with the, with Harry Manfredini's score going eh, like that's not suspense. That's just shitty. It's like filling time. Well, I've always thought of uh, Sean Cunningham as kind of being like little bill in uh, boogie nights. <laughs> <laughs> to where he's the one who's he's just flipping through the like the script with the rest of his crew being like, OK, and then Tom and Lori enter the cabin. They fuck blah, blah, blah. Jason enters murder. And then, uh, OK, then we get to page five. OK, well, they you know, Sally's here and then Tim's here. They fuck and then murder. And he's just like 
only for him it's a it's all about the violence he's like we, yeah. we just got to get through all this other bullshit and then we're to the actual like good stuff you know well and that's what kind of sets these films apart i think again beyond like having more deaths is having people like savini having these moments like i i think for me like the turning point of slasher films is kevin bacon's death i think it is this like really physical thing where we're used to like seeing people stabbed or killed with a chainsaw is kind of off screen. And here's this thing of a guy lying down and you think, how could he be attacked? And the way the blood drips from above and then he's attacked from below with the arrow, I think it's like a, not to be like too over the top here, but I think it's a, a, a turning point um, for what can be done with like the human body in a slasher film or a horror film. Well, it's an entire conversation to have about how Savini himself change the face of genre filmmaking forever yeah. get back from, to romero shit well, i was gonna say from dawn of the dead yeah. on really because he's really he's taking that visceral sense of violence and just applying it to an entire i guess sub-genre of horror where the cum shot the money shot is like the thing yeah. that people sign up for and like that's what he does like that's what he needs to do so like every time that he's approached to do like something like this or maniac or the prowler or the burning which yeah. is one of the great kind of friday offshoots let's say of all time like every scene you know they're coming to him and he's being like okay well what if the arrow came up this way or what if the the axe fell this way or what if he lost this limb or this eyeball take your pick what if a guy used shears in a boat I don't know. It's my just my favorite scene. Yeah, his. <laughs> I remember uh, interviewing an effects artist now in modern day, and he talked about doing it for the same reasons. To where he's like, I wake up and I just dream of horrible ways to kill people. And like, if you told my psychologist that, like, they'd be like, institutionalize this person. But like, I get to make a living off of it. You know. Well, his whole background was like he. he as the story he tells is Vietnam. And, right, and he holds photographs and yeah. and and seeing what can be done to the human body. And it's actually very similar to like what they talk about with the birth of the Grand Guignol and also like American horror was after World War One. And we were seeing it was the first war where you could see soldiers live with disfigurements. It was the they had the it, and there's a whole thing. David Scald did a, his book about a monster show where Frankenstein and Dracula in these films were based off of that that sense that you could live after an, an injury and what people were seeing coming back from the war in France. Well, and also like the idea that Vietnam was being transmitted into your home. Yes. Like that was the first time in American history where people were getting that kind of graphic footage just beamed into their living rooms and that like little Bobby and Susie could just be on the couch watching Mannix or whatever the fuck. And all of a sudden there's a break in from the, you know, Walter Cronkite being like, and here's the latest total in, in Vietnam. And they're showing horrible footage of like villages burned and soldiers maimed and dead bodies and everything. And like, that's why stuff, I mean, to bring it back to Cunningham, like last house on the left was like a reflection of those images coming into homes and everything. If you really wanted to take it down that kind of like Carol Clover, why we make monsters route is that like, you know, Last House, Texas Chainsaw, they're all a reflection of Vietnam and like the violence that people were 
realizing was occurring outside of their living room every day. And the idea that all of a sudden, like death was inevitable, whether you were a soldier or like a dude driving to work, it didn't matter. It was coming for you. And then the eighties translates that idea into the post Reagan excess to where every Friday has to be more dead teenagers, more boobs, more cocaine, more disco, Give me Alice Cooper, give me whoever doing the theme song. It's just more, 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 more. And I think that's why we look back and even something as crude as Last House on the Left, we hold it up now as like a horror classic, a real uh, keystone in the sub in the, the genre itself to where people still look at the Friday movies and are like, sure, but were these actually about anything other than reflecting like our just need to consume more and more and more because that's all that 80s culture was well it's interesting how cartoony they become too in the 80s as everyone oh yeah desensitized to it and and this is kind of a tangent but uh you brought up texas chainsaw as one of the examples and like that's such an angry movie because like reflecting like the you know the the consciousness of the time and then i rewatched the second one recently and 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 i always looked at that movie as just like a fun cartoony you know like anti-texas chainsaw movie but when you but watching it now like the, that one feels just as angry in a different way and it feels like to me that one and i know we're not talking about texas chainsaw but it just i was thinking about it that feels texas chainsaw 2 feels almost like an angry response to how cartoony a lot of these slashers became and almost like a like a theme park um like roller coaster ride and and it feels like hooper's kind of looking around at america and the, the horror, like the slasher genre, just throwing his hands up and saying like, you know, like what happened to all of this? And I feel like the Jason movies really reflect that for as much as I like a lot of them, they do kind of become much more cartoony as they go along. And I think that it, it's just interesting watching that shift happen to where it's like horrific and then it's like almost there's it becomes like exciting to see the death scenes and like there's like a there's like a you you said this about uh Kevin Bacon's death like and I think that this continues along there's like an art to the kill almost uh and and um I was also thinking about uh how these movies kind of went in tandem with the the nightmare movies and I think a lot of people think of the nightmare movies as having the more cinematic deaths and everything, but rewatching a lot of these um, Friday movies, I think that it's people kind of dis discount how artistic a lot of these deaths are. And it's just interesting, um, you know, for things that get written off as just exploitative trash or whatever. It, it's interesting seeing the level of thought that goes into the, the kills and everything. And, you know, if that makes any sense. It does, but I always consider, too, the motivation behind, like, say, a movie like Last House or Texas Chainsaw, which were both made by hippies, more or less. Like, Wes Craven right. was this outsider, kind of beatnik college professor who moves to New York, begins editing adult films with Sean Cunningham with, I believe it was Hallmark Productions was the name of it. <laughs> and then, you know, they get some money, and Sean Cunningham comes to him and is like, we need to make a horror film because that'll make money. Can you do this? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And it's like, he was transmitting that angry post Vietnam, or even at that point, like during Vietnam, 
sensibility of like violence and everything kind of caving in on him. And then Hooper is one of the great examples of hippies just picking up a camera and responding to the world around him to where Cunningham is just a businessman. Right. Like, right. you know, like he's just signing up and being like that made money. Guess what? We're going to make more money and we're going to do more cocaine and it's going to be awesome. Like that's what the eighties are all about. Like, and then and we're th- going to spill over all the way up through wall street. And I think it's kind of like, almost charming how crass and open (laughs) these movies are about that because there's almost like a as the series goes along it feels like there's almost like a cash-in attempt with some of these where they're like just missing the period of time where the where it would have been a cash-in but they're still trying like with um with seven you know having like a carry type in it or nine feeling almost like an evil dead movie it's like they're just missing what they could have cashed in on (laughs) but they're still like throwing it at you anyway, hoping something sticks. That's a, that's a great point. And I think what's, um, you know, he talked about, we'll get to part nine, but like he, he, you know, he was a huge fan of the director, a huge fan of evil dead and had got to be on set for army of darkness and borrowed the actual Necronomicon from that's the actual book from that movie that, you know, that he brought in. Um, but it's funny that Cunningham is the ultimate businessman, as you said, Jacob, because he only wanted to make Friday the 13th to make a series of soccer movies. Like he's not even a horror fan. It's always interesting <laughs> to me that these people who now are like lauded, like they brought him back for Jason goes to hell that, you know, the man who brought you the originals here to produce here to bring you the final film. He makes deep star six. He kind of gets like pigeonholed into the horror films and he doesn't even like them that much. You have someone like Carpenter who's like, I grew up with a thing for another world. He's very loyal to the kind of films that he wants to make. But I, just, I think it's funny that Cunningham <laughs> was like, well, I'm going to follow the money. Well, it kind of harkens back to H.G. Lewis being uh, an ad man, you know? Yeah. Like horror has always been a haven for hucksters, you know? And Cunningham is in the great line of like dudes who just thought I can make a buck here. If I really, you know, not even really apply myself, just apply myself halfway, you know, and and put out something somewhat competent. But they spawned this massive franchise, which I do find interesting is that there's a schism. So you have one through four is just angry. Well, one is the mom. Two, three and four, the angry mongoloid murderer series. And then five is the Scooby-Doo episode fueled by sex and cocaine. And then six, seven, and eight are all zombie Jason. Zombie Jason, to Brandon's point, is when the series really gets fucking weird. And, like, even though I think seven, the new blood, is the worst in the entire franchise, rewatching it this time, I still was like, I see where you're going with this. And there's enough fucking strange stuff that I find this intensely watchable. So we talked about this before with, I think killer party, but the slasher film kind of died in 82, um, that the original burst of, uh, post Halloween exploitation and everybody, um, again, with when I was researching this, like every week for basically two or three years, in the top 25, there's a slasher film and some of them really small movies. And 
the only films that survived were these franchises, which were Halloween and Halloween died for a good bit of time of the eighties between three and it was even a slasher and, and number four. And then you have Freddie and you have Jason. And what's interesting is Freddie and Jason both became like t-shirts and toys and Halloween masks, wrestlers and, and, and wrestlers. Like they learned how to survive and <laughs> to get back to Reagan era, like Reagan era, corporate America. And I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to go down that, that, that hole too far, but do you know what I'm saying? Too much whiskey has been had to be academic <laughs> here. <laughs> well, but I, I, see I see what you're saying though, because it's like, you know, nightmare is the movie that people always credit with revitalizing yes. the slasher to where like you were on because the golden age quote unquote is basically 1980 through 83 so 78 to 82 is what they say so, so like, basically post halloween to like 82 83 yeah. then it's dying down and then west craven makes uh nightmare on elm street which i always found kind of fascinating is that in the 70s you know he he's an predates exploitation and slashers with last house uh 84, he comes in and then revitalizes the subgenre with Nightmare on Elm Street and then comes in again over a decade later with Scream and like boosts it back up again, all while making like these low key bangers in between like People Under the Stairs, Serpent in the Rainbow, just great fucking movies. Also fell flat on his face with stuff like Hills Have Eyes Part 2, but, you know, that at least has a movie where like a dog's on acid or something. (laughs) So like. But yet, it, Nightmare is the movie that's like, we brought this back. But then, like, again, in a weird way, I almost feel like that's where Zombie Jason comes from, is that it's the supernatural response yes. to yeah. the slasher's beings or becoming supernatural. Mm-hmm. Well, and to, to your point, Martin, about how, like, the, they, the slasher genre was, like, dead by a certain point, I think that's why I like Goes to Hell so much. And kind of by extension why i also love freddy's dead like i know that they're both kind of seen as like the nadir of both franchises but i think both of them are really kind of interesting um looks at what the franchises have become and they're like kind of looking at themselves and being like what happened here like what, how did we get here and they're just as confused as we are and and with goes to hell i think it's really it, it's really kind of fun watching it kind of wrestle with itself to the point where like you know, Jason is possessing people and it, I mean, I'm probably giving this way too much credit, but it almost comes off to me as like, you know, we've be by this point, by part nine, we're so desensitized to the franchise. You you know, he's a cartoon character that it's just like people are going out, out as him for Halloween. So why not, you know, go all in on that where, you know, the killers in this movie are people essentially dressing up as Jason sort of, I mean, they're not, they don't look like him, but, but you know what I'm saying? And, and I think that's, yeah, like I, I really love goes to hell and my rewatch this last week, like really kind of confirmed that for me is it's just like, it's a really knowing movie. And I think that more than anything, it kind of nailed just how dead the, the, the genre was and kind of, kind of put the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, but not in a way that, that I think was, I, I think it was intentional. Um, and I think a lot of people look at that as like, oh, that movie's terrible. And that, that put the nail in the coffin unintentionally. But I think that I th- kind of think they knew what they were doing. 
Well, and it's kind of one of the first big instances of Galaxy IP brain too, right? Yeah. Because New Line is buying Paramount's biggest slasher franchise so that they can combine it and do the ultimate showdown, again, to bring it back to wrestling of Freddy versus Jason, because there have been so many drafts throughout the years oh of Freddy God. versus Jason. And that was the whole idea of buying Jason and doing Jason Goes to Hell is that and with the, the the stinger ending of Freddy's glove coming up and grabbing the mask and pulling it it's down in, to hell is that it's like it's supposed to set up this ultimate showdown of like slasher titans. So like Bob Shea and New Line were already again like they were with Lord of the Rings, frankly, ahead of the game and ahead of the curve with the rest of the the world who would catch up later. Brandon, you go first. I have an idea off that too. Well, I just think it's insane that like they were so dead set on the Freddy vs. Jason thing. And there's that great book, um, Slash of the Titans. I don't know if you guys have ever read that, but there's like a whole book about like every attempt that was made. But it's just insane that in 93, that movie ends with Freddy's glove pulling his mask into hell. And then it still took another 10 years for them to even capitalize on it. It's just nuts that like how long that took. And you even had James Cameron's best buddy who worked on the abyss, Louis Abernathy turned in that weird draft to where it's like a boxing match in hell. And Hitler (laughs) is the, is the referee and like Joan of arcs and the like real fucked up. Like you were, how many drugs were you on, sir? When you wrote this like styles, it feels hard filmmaking in like, in retrospect, it feels like such an easy thing to do. Um, you know, it's just, it's so strange how hard it was for them to nail to nail it. And I mean, I guess it's like, it's still up in the air whether they did even nail it, you know, with the movie that came, that we got, but it's just so weird that you would think that it's like, kind of like you're just leaving so much money on the table and it's such an easy thing to do. And they just really struggled with trying to figure it out. The the interesting thing. So I've watched way too many making ofs about, um, Jason goes to hell because it was my least <laughs> it was my least favorite for a long time. And I've watched interviews with Adam Marcus, the director, and he grew up with the Cunninghams. Like he was part of the family. Um, yeah, so he's friends with Noel, um, Sean's son, and he wrote the script for my boyfriend's back. And Sean took that script and sold it to Disney. And yep. So Adam Marcus was 23 years old when he made Jason Goes to Hell, which is insane. And yeah. And he was, again, part of the family. And after they had sold, Sean Cunningham came to him and said, hey, this is right what you're talking about, Brandon, where, you know, you get New Line getting the rights to um, to Jason from Paramount. And the end of that film, you know, when Freddy's glove comes through was not New Line's idea. And this is not Adam Marcus being apocryphal. He's like, no, he's like, they didn't care about world building. He's like, we live in an MCU world. We believe that there's always someone at the studio who's always thinking of, he brings us up in the interview, a recent interview. And it's ruined us all. Yeah. Which has ruined us all <laughs> is that he just, he was a horror fan. That's straight up. That's why he wanted the Necronomicon. He was a huge evil dead fan. And he just would put, you know, he wanted the Kandarian dagger basically from Evil Dead, which he they designed it after for the movie. And in the end, he he just called New Line and he said, Hey, what do you guys think about 
at the very last shot, Freddy's glove pops to the ground and pulls the mask down to hell. And he hears in the background, it was, um, who's the guy who brought in uh, Boogie Nights? Oh, Michael DeLuca. DeLuca. He hears Luca losing his mind in the background. He's like, yes, yes, yes. It is a genius idea. <laughs> and, and it was it, it, so it, it really is. And so we have this, we we um, we assume that it was this like studio thing, but they didn't even know how to do that kind of shit yet. They bought it thinking forward. Um, but I like that story that he was just they're like, sure. And they brought it in a like a fucking glass box. It was the <laughs> Freddy glove that was like under lock and key. <laughs> it's like handcuffed to somebody's wrist. I mean, for real. And, and, and Sam Raimi gave the Necronomicon in a Ziploc bag <laughs> on the set of Ari. He goes, yeah, just take it. <laughs> See, I kind of love that kind man. of world. I love that kind of world building where they have no idea what they're doing much more than this like era of like insane calculation or where like yes. we need to put this in yes. here to, to set up this tv show and that's going to set up this movie that, that that's exhausting this is way more fun it's just like hey what should we do this yeah why not well and that holds with the backstory of new line in general right who started as basically like an exploitation company doing nothing but importing like foreign movies and, and dubbing them and roger corman projects that were shot in like malaysia and thailand and indonesia and stuff and like just really putting out low grade nonsense and then becoming the house that Freddie built. And even uh, what's the other uh, alone in the dark, like the earliest one that what's his name? Who directed uh, oh, Freddie to oh, shoulder, Jack shoulder. Yeah. Jack yeah. shoulder who he directed yeah, alone in the dark, him. which might be the first big new line production. It's one of the earliest. And then he gets graduated yeah. to Freddie too and everything. But like they were a true, exploitation house until the 90s really and paul thomas anderson comes along well it's insane that like arguably now they're known for being the lord of the rings company like (laughs) it's crazy yeah like you just would never think that bob shea's a genius he really is (laughs) well i I mean not to get into freddy land but everything i've watched about the making of nightmare on elm street like they were down to the penny every fucking day oh yeah like like they thought the company was going broke the whole time every single day. And like, they were like, no one was paid at all. And they're, they're like lucky that people would stay on set and keep shooting. And then they make Wes Craven's just glad he has a house again. <laughs> it's, I mean, we'll have to do another episode on nightmares. I'd love to go into that too, but um, it's hard to talk about one without the other, right? No, 100%. Yeah. But before we get into the post, like paramount stuff, like Freddie, uh, you know, Last Friday, Jason X, and then Freddy versus Jason in the remake. What do you guys think of New Blood and Manhattan? Because I have distinct opinions about one. Brandon, I want you to take this away for us. Well, I I think I actually came around to New Blood a little bit recently. It's definitely on the lower end for me, but um, I I like the concept more than the execution. I think the Carrie stuff, I mean, I know she's not Carrie, but... I mean, she is Carrie. But, she's uh, Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> I think great. She's Carrie. <laughs> I, I like that idea. I think it's fun. Um, I think it's a fun place to take the series. But God, that movie just drags and drags and drags. It's And it, and I think the last 20 minutes are great. And that, that's kind of what a lot of these end up succeeding with are the last 20 minutes. But like the, all the set, like the big set piece with like the house falling apart and everything is awesome. Like, I mean, I don't know how they pulled that off because I don't know how much that movie cost, but it couldn't have been a lot. But I mean, that that stuff's really cool. But um, 
still haven't come around on Manhattan though. And I think I, I think I have share a similar opinion with most people and that might be my least favorite. Um, I love the very brief scene that he's in Manhattan. Um, and I love, uh, what's her name? Why am I blanking on her name? But she's, uh, awesome. Um, I cannot believe I'm blinking on her name. Uh, Kelly who? Uh, oh, oh, dude, she's like yeah. way up my list. She's yeah. Like, like, I, Lady, I, Lady Deathstrike. <laughs> yeah. She's like one of the best uh, parts of that. But she's like, maybe is the best part of that movie. But yeah, I kind of struggle with that movie. Um, Man- Manhattan. I, I think it's got a lot of charm to it, but um, it, it's just, it's funny how Kane Hodder became like, you know, everyone's favorite Jason when, you know, he's kind of a part of like what's widely considered like the worst stretch of Jason, even yeah, though I, I like a lot of, these <laughs> I, 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 I'm not the biggest fan of hotter. I like him, but I think that his hulking, you know, brute Jason has never been super my thing, I guess. Like he, he, they, they, they go a little bit too buck wild with how big they make him. But uh, yeah, uh, Manhattan, I think is probably my least favorite. Um, I know that's not a unique opinion, but it's just, it's, that was a tough watch for me, especially because like a lot of these are like between 85 and 90 minutes. And that one's like bordering on an hour 45 somehow. <laughs> and that it just drags. You mean, yeah, Jason takes Vancouver. Yeah. For real. <laughs> <laughs> look, OK, look, I'm going to be the sole defender of Jason takes Manhattan. I got I think I'm in the middle. I'm, I'm Goldilocks. I, here. I love but... it. It's almost top five for me because like it's Yacht Rock Jason because you get not just one boat. But two. <laughs> uh, we also get like only one of my favorite things is that, again, it, it feels pure in a way in terms of how exploitative it is, because even the fucking montage for the opening with the credits and everything has that like the darkest side of the night. Yeah. Song. And then you have that weird fucking <laughs> like, narration. But you have the. But you have the weird, like, super grave narration about, like, we love New York. We love the night. It almost sounds like the narration at the beginning of Cyborg in a weird way. <laughs> but, like, he's so, like, into, like, just being one of the mutants who trolled New York City in the 80s. But I like that you have that to set up. And then it's smash cut boat, Crystal Lake, night. Two people, you don't care who they are. Jason Boards fucks them all up becomes the captain of the love boat like that's <laughs> okay, the whole movie you're selling me now until like, the <laughs> last like 20 minutes is that they were like well okay yeah we're gonna call it jason takes manhattan but that's some bullshit he's really just gonna fuck up some kids on a boat we call it a cruise ship but it's really an oil tanker and then by the end we'll have 20 solid minutes of him in new york and the 20 minutes of him in New York is fucking awesome because that's like Cartoon Network, Bill Lustig, New York, where like the sewers are flooded with toxic waste at midnight minutes. every night. Uh, there's punk gangs just listening to boom boxes on the sidewalk. It does have one of my greatest kind of gripes with the Friday the 13th franchise is that why would you put Jason on a subway car as it's moving and not have him slaughter everyone around him? But We'll let that one go. But I think that the stuff in Manhattan works for me personally. And also there is some nostalgia because this is the movie I probably watched on HBO like 13 times. I would just wake up 
at one, two, three in the morning, <laughs> make sure the volume on my parents' big screen TV and like the second floor of our house was just low enough that they it wouldn't wake them up in here. And I watched that movie so many fucking times as a kid. This was the best time I had with this movie, I think, ever. Um, I think I watched them all in order and just kind of like plowing through the series. This has always been, like you said, Brandon, super low on my list, like really low on my list. Y'all crazy. But <laughs> I, you know, started thinking of it as Voorhees takes the high seas. And when I just kind of thought of it as that, it's just a boat movie. And I like movies on the ocean horror movies on a, a boat it's like if brian ferry was jason oh I'm oh in. my god <laughs> oh oh i love and i've seen him in concert a couple times but you know they one of my favorite elements of this movie that i i think i would pluck from it and put another one it's julius i think the boxer <laughs> yes. who's still in training when are, so are they they've all graduated and there's this kid this woman who's still like a girl who's still uh needs to finish her science project for the principal, it seems like, um, who is one of the one, – one of the cool things about these – one of the interesting things about these later films with um, seven, eights, and then really also – seven and eight. Seven and also ten are these, like, um, patriarchal figures, the teacher in ten, of um, – Are you really counting Jason X in this? Yes, and <laughs> they – I was uh, watching uh, – I think it was one of the special features and they were talking about um, I think it was number seven is that by number seven, people are kind of tired of just a slasher being your only villain. You need a secondary villain. You need like the father figure. We talk about this over text, Jacob of it's so fucking stupid. Six. You have the sheriff who doesn't believe six is basically a monster movie from the fifties. I mean, it's straight up like, Oh yeah. The, you know, that actually it, works though. Cause that sheriff comes around by the end and is kind right. of a good guy and has one of the best deaths in the series where he just breaks that motherfucker in half. Oh, it's one of the <laughs> it, I, top, top five fair death. But then you have two, you have, um, you know, eight, uh, seven and eight where you have, uh, Bernie from weekend at Bernie's, uh, local Austinite, Terry Kaiser here, uh, who teaches <laughs> acting. <laughs> Austin. Um, <laughs> I've heard he's an interesting guy. A legendary uh, prick. Yeah, I, I just heard he's the fucking worst, but um, that he's, you know, the doctor. Uh, and then you have eight with the teacher slash, you know, stepfather or adopted father. And the fact that, like, you need more than just the silent killer to give uh, drama and conflict to each scene. Um, and it works. I mean, I think it does work for what it is. I hate those characters, but it's you, people cheer when they die. Um, and I think it definitely works. Yeah. You're excited to see them go, especially Terry Kaiser. I was, <laughs> couldn't stand him. In seven. This is a real piece of shit. <laughs> seven is weirdly almost like the exploitation version of an a 24 movie too, because it's like, we're going <laughs> to yes, take yes. this woman into the woods it's about trauma. I was just about trauma. to say. <laughs> well, two of these movies have that because you have that and then you have three yep. where the woman, uh, one of the, the main final girls, like re-enters the forest and has the weird flashback where like she talks about her encounter with Jason as a young girl, almost like he's a rapist. It's one of the strangest times that like it might be the only time in the franchise where like we're clued into like Jason might get horny every now and again. 
because like she recounts it like and then he came at me i'll never forget that face and i was like i don't know if they meant to do this but it's fucking weird man (laughs) but then new blood is almost like we're gonna take this woman into the woods to re-experience her trauma and then generate her fire starter-esque powers and it's it's so goddamn dumb one thing I want to say about three, she has the worst fucking friends in the world. She is if if following your narrative of either being a rape or just trauma survivor, physical trauma survivor, that they didn't clue in people who are going with her for the first time. Shelly's like, hey, I'm a makeup guy and I'm going to pretend to be fucking murdered like every five minutes. You think someone would clue him in is like, hey, she's kind of had a rough year. Can we cool down with like your whole scaring people thing it's just like the worst group of friends you could ask for hey could you not fuck with the rape victim yeah that please might be a bad idea no it, for the film of the series that feels like definitely they were kind of figuring out where the franchise was trying to go has kind of like a a deep heart to it or like a deep kind of trauma uh narrative to the film you know when you get to the later films you get to like you know uh, in the par- in the uh, post Paramount days of New Line with uh, Jason Goes to Hell, Jason X, and Freddy versus Jason, it kind of goes the other direction of pretty broad embracing it, I- I- embracing just the goofiness of the series. I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, and that's the point I was making about um, Goes to Hell before is that I think that it's kind of it feels like it's just throwing its hands in the air, going like what did what happened to this franchise <laughs> and then and and i think the commentary in that movie around the franchise is really kind of like knowing and biting and really funny and then 10 attempts at um i rewatched 10 that's the most recent one i rewatched uh yesterday and i i think i had it in my head that i liked 10 more than i did i still i, I still think it's a total blast but i think its commentary on the franchise and being silly with it is is a little bit too on the nose to the point where it's like it, it it's not as funny as I remember it being, but ten for as much as it drags, still it, it it's really kind of funny how they map all the different character types, you know, from like the hanging out around the campfire in the woods. They map that onto a space station to where you even have the burnout who gets his arm cut off early on in the movie. And like it's just really funny how they try to like one to one this series but on a space station. And I'm never as horrible as like the like the sci-fi channel aesthetic is to this movie. I, I'm never going to complain about like a space station full of scumbags getting off to buy something. I mean, that's like such a tried and true like formula for a great movie. And so I, I I'm into Jason X. I, I just didn't like it as much as I remembered it, liking it. This film is interesting because I, again, you know, stories, my friend, Justin and I, who we watched all this shit together in uh, middle school Prom weekend, junior year, Jason X comes out, 2001, and he's like, we got to go. And so we go, and we're just smiling ear to ear. So for a fucking 17-year-old 
Jason fan. This gave me everything that I wanted. Rewatching it, I totally agree. Um, it feels like an episode of Stargate, Stargate Atlantis. Um, yeah. And I think it has actors from that show. <laughs> it's the most and, anonymous. It's it's the most anonymous cast. Like I think Cronenberg's the only recognizable person in that movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, I forget his name, but the uh, head of the security force. He's also in Spartacus. Yeah, oh, right. and, yeah. and yeah. there's the TV show. Um, but it feels. I, I like when horror movies go into space. And they're like, hey, this is, you know, you have like uh, Leprechaun did it very famously. It had a whole like side series just in space and um, in the hood and in the hood. This one feel <laughs> this does. This, this one does feel like you said a sci fi channel original. I mean, like really cheaply done. But it's funny that like every character that like, we've advanced as a culture for four hundred fifty five years, I think they say. But it's just a bunch of hornball still the yeah. same. You have the same beat from uh, Jason takes Manhattan where she's like, hey, I don't like my grade or and she's like, I'm going to twist your nipple to get the right grade from you. They just straight up steal from one of the worst of the series. Well, and and it is roll with it. Right. It, and it's also I, I do think one of the funniest jokes in the entire franchise is that he's awakened after all these years by people having uh, premarital sex. Yes, like, <laughs> that's so funny. And then but um, my biggest complaint is that Uber Jason's such a big selling point of that movie. And then they barely make use of it. And I just I remember like. I was pretty young when this came out, but I remember seeing the trailers and just being so excited by just like, why does he look like that? And then you see the movie and it's like 10 minutes. He does look, I mean, he looks fucking cool. I, I yeah. like, I love his metal arm, his metal leg. I think the mask is cool. His like rebuilt eyes by that, like bio machine that reconstitutes him. Um, it's like a Ridley Scott movie made for $37 <laughs> and a burrito, you know, I, I, you know, this, this is one I write off a whole lot. Um, and watching these in order, this was a lot of fun. I, I will say that back to your point, Brandon, of like, I love the extremity of this series. And, and I think that like Halloween has extremity too. When you get into the thorn, the thorn part of yeah. the, the series, but this goes fucking wild. I mean, you go from like Jason goes to hell to Jason X. They're both pretty fuck. And I'll say end of Freddy versus Jason. They're all pretty insane movies, like really bad special effects, <laughs> really <laughs> broad senses of what this franchise is and what fans re- fans want. And the fact that fans kind of don't like either of or any of those three films is interesting to me. I always like Jason Goes to Hell the most out of these two because it feels like the most 90s horror movie of all time. Like, it's straight up the hard copy Jason. <laughs> well, the yeah. hard copy guy's in it. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> like, it, it just is updating it. It's almost like, okay, well, you know this character from the 80s. Where this is the 90s version of him. And, like, you even pointed out that, like, the the FBI agent that, tracks him down in the beginning with that sting is like one of Ben Gazzara's main girls. It's the main girl from Roadhouse. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. From Roadhouse. I got a big crush on her. But it's still it's Adam Marcus totally leaning into the 
sort of 90s ironic thing that would take yeah. over and then Scream would really run yes. with. Yes, yeah. And then the Jason opening scene so meta. just embraces yeah. that and is like, this is all a joke. It's funny. Like, there's some great kills and scares and whatever, but we're in fucking space, man. You know, it's the same. Like, Jason Goes to Hell at least tries to make a real movie out of it, even if it's like the Dollar General Sam Raimi version of it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And it is, I've always wondered this, and I guess I should have looked it up beforehand, but was Jason Goes to Hell a script without Jason at first? Because it feels a lot like a movie that had nothing to do with him and that they threw him into because they needed another Jason movie. So it, it was actually a little bit different than that. It was a Jason movie with Tommy Jarvis was going to be the, the John DeLemay character the lead male oh, with the glasses. Wow. So, and he was the lead from the TV series. Um, the oh, Friday right. Train TV. Yeah. Yeah. And so the idea was we're going to do Tommy Jarvis, a little bit older, got a girl pregnant and she's also, and I, I think the Voorhees family stuff came a little bit later, but it was going to be another continuation. But what's interesting, I didn't know this when new line bought Jason, they just bought Jason nothing yeah, else I they were that. not allowed yeah. to take anything else so tommy jarvis and any ancillary characters are completely gone and but i john d lemay so i my sister-in-law who i love got me the entire series for christmas a couple of years ago because she's awesome and i watched that entire series and it's for those of you who've watched the series or haven't it has nothing to do at <laughs> all with the movie series. And I, as a kid, was like, oh, my God, there's a whole thing where Jason's killing people for like 60 episodes. It's it's just Tales from the Dark Side. And every episode is about their wizard uncle who died, who had a bunch of haunted relics that he gave away or sold. And they're trying to get them back into their protected vault. It's as stupid as it sounds, but it's also <laughs> quite delightful. So having watched that whole series since I re last rewatched Jason Goes to Hell, it was so fun to see they gave John D. LeMay a chance to be their leading man. Um, I think he's charming. I like him as the lead in this movie. Yeah, yeah, I definitely do, too. I think he's a lot of fun. And um, my, my only because I had a lot. I really loved rewatching this, and I think my only complaint with the entire movie is I don't understand Creighton Duke and why he's in the movie and why why they, they do absolutely nothing with that because that could have been a blast and he's just kind of useless I 100% agree with you man 100% I feel like you could pitch a whole Creighton Duke like series to Netflix right now and they would buy the shit out of it yeah him going after different slashers that, that would be a lot exactly of do you guys want to get into questions next let's do it all right. Friday the 13th, walking out of school. Me and Mike is trying to come up with something to do. We could go TV, we could watch movies. We could turn the bad channel on and see boobies. Mike, we do the same thing every week. By 9.15, I'm so bored I fall asleep. We 
ain't playing Halo, we ain't playing Joust. We gon' pay a visit to the Voorhees house. That last name got Mike's heart racing. Said, wait a minute, that's the house of Jason. Oh no, no, I ain't doing that. Are you going crazy? You must be going mad. You know what's gonna happen if we step into the house? Two of us go in and none of us come out. But I convinced him he wasn't very hard. He said they'd go if I gave him my charge on. Some people say that the whole thing's true. Other people say if you believe it, you're a fool. And Friday's the best day of the week. But not when it's Friday the 13th. Some people say that the whole thing's true. Other people say if you believe it, you're a fool. And Friday's the best day of the week. But not when it's Friday the 13th. And we're back with questions about the Friday the 13th franchise. All right, guys. Who wants to go first with their top three Friday movies? Uh, I can Brandon, go first. Go for it, Brandon. Okay, so this is going to be, oh, I think you guys have kind of convinced me on a few, giving a few another go, but I don't think any of them have cracked my top three. So I'll go, I'll go from three to one, three. And I feel, I feel like some people are going to think I'm nuts for this, but it's the remake. I think I just, I really kind of love the remake a lot. I saw it in theaters like, and, and I just like, remember the first 20 minutes of that movie just like we're flying by and and I was think I was thinking we were with the main cast <clears throat> and he they're slowly all getting killed one by one and I was like man this movie's moving fast and then they just drop the title in after those 20 minutes and then you're like oh that wasn't the main cast at all and I just think that it kind of com- combines the first three originals in a See, really you fun just way. you just tapped into my favorite thing about the remake is that they use the credits to recap it's almost like a previously on like yeah, you've seen yeah. the Friday the 13th movies and now we're like doing our version of that. So it just recaps all of Jason's backstory, gets it in and then has honestly one of the best set pieces of all time in the whole franchise. Like that fucking, when he's just a woodsman, Oh my God. He sets yeah. Traps and is hanging that girl. Bear trap. Fire. Like, yeah. Like the, the remake is undervalued. It would I be really- pretty high on mine too. Yeah, so that's that's number three, and then New Beginnings number two for me. Just sort of all the reasons we talked about before. I just love that it's so just morally disgusting, and <laughs> just feels like a porno that accidentally captured like a Jason movie happening in the background. <laughs> and then um, number one is Jason Lives. I just think that that movie's gorgeous. I think McLaughlin is it McLaughlin or McLaughlin? I can't, I can't. I never think remember. McLaughlin. I okay, think yeah. McLaughlin. Yeah, Mc- yeah. I, I just love McLaughlin's like whole style. It's like very gothic and feels like almost like a classic like fifties monster movie. And I just that's my favorite one. I can watch that one a million times. Well, and the Bond intro too. Oh, oh so yeah. cool. So good. Yeah. Martin. Uh Brian, it's I mean, first off, I love the remake. Uh I saw it twice in theaters, and I one of the greatest things I ever heard in an audience was the second time I saw it. First time I saw it actually was a scene where uh, Travis Van Winkle, the, just the douchey frat boy. He's so good. He's in this so movie. good. In this. And from, <laughs> yeah. from, from the first transformer. So he's in, he's in Michael Bay land and he's running from Jason. He drops his gun into a puddle and he loses it. This guy behind me just goes, that is so not gangsta. And, <laughs> And <laughs> it that that line is tied to this movie 
forever. And, and I saw it again, I think three days later at like a dining theater in Atlanta. Um, love, love the remake, but my list is, well, and we also haven't touched on like Jared Padalecki being the backpacker brother from part four. Yep. Yeah. And also yeah. like bringing that whole supernatural energy into the Friday the 13th franchise. Like he's so awesome in it. Well, and you said Brandon like that, um, you know, the, the remake really kind of mixes together or four mixes together one through three, but I think the remake, you know, obviously mixes all this together. Right. And you get that down home Hicksville, thing with the kind of like very heroic brother on the hunt for the killer or kidnapper well and the his sister. sister vibe too they're all after the weed crop yes yeah. like the first yeah. set is after the weed crop the one dude who he kills in the barn for like the mask and everything is yeah. after his weed and like jason might be just a horner like horny stoner mongoloid in the <laughs> woods like it's one more pretty wild um <laughs> Uh, but my list would be um, five is my is my third favorite. Um, honestly, depending on the day, it might be number one. But I, I adore this movie. This gives me everything I want from a slasher with an edge to it. Um, it's, again, mean. It's gross. It's sexy. Um, I mean, like, I think, again... <laughs> Deborah Sue Voorhees, I think is her name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Brandon. Yep. Um, and I, I said this to Jacob, but the, if yeah, all the listeners haven't checked it out. Um, Jean Lejoy's um, music video of new beginning, uh, his band Wolf. He's just fine. Is, I'm not sure. Have you seen it, Brandon? I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So for me, like, that's just like the fact that like, I think of that 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 song whenever I see this now, and I and it's funny when that came out, I was like, oh my god, this is like my childhood. When I saw Part Five, again, my friend Justin from high from middle school and high school, when we're watching that sex scene for the first time, his mom walks in, she's like, what are you watching? And just sits down and watches the whole scene with us and then walks out immediately after. So uh, it's like it, the worst part you can walk in. The wor- yeah, it, it's it's like a preternatural thing for parents to know the most awkward part to walk in for. Um, number two would be number four. So my, my second favorite would be uh, final chapter. I think this is I've seen this on the big screen uh, to my friend who had never seen it and was like, oh, my God, have I never seen this movie? It's perfect. It's funny. I love again for the hangout feature. I love the teens. Um, and it's just you get Joseph Zito and you get Savini going full tilt. One of the best Jason deaths too, sliding down that machete. Um, oh, yeah. Just yeah. with his eye twitching. It's great. And number one is two. I uh, part two of this, of this series. I've I've watched the movie so many times. It's Steve Miner. I think your jazz point. I never thought of it, Jacob. Is completely right on. It's kind of weird. I also love that half the cast survives because they're drunk at a roadside bar. <laughs> and I, I love the idea that like just everyone who's left behind is killed. And then our other two characters come back 
and everyone else is like, I'm going to get fucked up or our other character that our ginger character is like, I want to get laid. I want to fuck the bartender. And it gives me hope that if you're just like really shooting your shot at a shitty bar, you might survive. It's just, maybe it's better to stay there at the shitty bar and live. Yeah, exactly. Cause he's, he's not going to make his way all the way over there. He's too lazy. <laughs> it's not happening. He's got all the fucking Heineken Heineken bottles on the, the bar and Jacob, <laughs> I got to hear your top three. Uh, I'd go final chapter part two and then Jason lives. No five. No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> final chapter, I agree with Brandon. It's just a perfect slasher movie. Yes. They've figured out the formula. The kids rule. It's funny. It's idiosyncratic. You have Crispin Glover dancing. Um, <laughs> the twins are incredibly hot. Yep. The gore is great because you have Savini back. You bring in the brother who's like the, the uh, Captain Ahab. Yep. The Friday the 13th franchise, like all the pieces are there. Like they've just figured it all out Two, because for a lot of the reasons that you kind of put, like it has the, the, the jazzy feel of like, Oh, what do we do next? The opening sequence, which we haven't even touched on, I feel like is super important to horror history to where it's just like you pick up with the last Final victim girl. of the yeah. last movie, which Eli Roth like straight up steals for Hostel Two, mm-hmm. um, like sh- Adrian King. Which can we litigate one thing real quick? It's a debate that me and my girlfriend had. So I figured out that Carrie had never seen the original Friday Thirteenth, and we watched it together, and she got really into it because of the hangout vibe that we were talking about. But she was also like, so I brought up the fact that I had a huge crush on Adrian King. And even went as far right after college, there was a coworker that I had, there might've been an affair because she looked a lot like Adrian King. Um, I, <laughs> I said that to Carrie and she was like, so you think she's hot? And I was like, yeah. And she's a, she just goes, no, like just flat out blanket. No. So I'm going to ask the question is Adrian King hot. Brandon, all you go first. I was here. (laughs) I was okay. I was here for the real time response because as Jacob was watching this with his girlfriend, I was responding. So I want you to hear your, uh, your take first. Um, I think objectively speaking, probably, <laughs> but she's not, not my uh, taste, I would say, <laughs> but I, so, I, I think so. Cause I'm, go ahead. She has a, she has a very mom quality to her. Horrible haircut. That looks like a haircut. penis. It's the haircut that's, do- yeah, yeah. It's the haircut that throws you. Again, back to final exam and Tonshiger mushroom cut, boy cut, uh, butt cut. I I think it was like, oh man, this must have been like seven, eight, seven years ago or so. Adrian King is a person who her entire Facebook and social media is like she responds to your friend request. So I had a friend to her, she she responded. For my like 20 something birthday, she's like, Happy birthday from Crystal Lake. 
and all my friends flipped the fuck out. And well, Carrie asked that too. She was like, "Has she been in anything else?" And I went, hmm. "She's yeah. done some some smaller but yeah, she's stuff. been in stuff. She's been in stuff, but she she has a Crystal Lake winery, um, Good where she her. where she does winery stuff." And the way she treated me and everyone else in her fan base is the kindest human being. And I was honestly very touched by that at the time. And I still am. I think it's like the sweetest thing you could do for a fan where it's like, I see you on your birthday. I know it sounds kind of cheesy. Um, it, it really goes a long way though. Yeah, it does. When you think about like, you know, Bruce Campbell being ahead of the curve on like, going to horror cons oh yeah and, cool. and understanding this is where the money is but she has a very genuine kind of energy to her um and, and so i think she's a very attractive person um i have a, some i have a high list though of all my favorite friday the 13th ladies and let's <laughs> do it because oh oh i, can, I don't know how to do it question because, well my next thing about friday two hottest women ever like in the entire franchise, like there's the top three in that. Like I'm just going to throw it to Brandon because I think Brandon, I, I just, you've been helping me out tonight. So <laughs> no, well, no, 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 no. I'm saying straight up. Like there's no question. Oh shit. Like Amy Steele, Kirsten Baker and Lauren Marie Taylor. That's it. Lauren Marie Taylor is from what? She's the, the nerdy, cute girl who wants to bang the dude in the wheelchair. Oh, from uh, girls Night out. Yes. Oh man. Uh, That's like, I have a whole thing with her and Kirsten Baker to where I'm like, you know, you want Lauren Marie Taylor in the streets, but you want Kirsten Baker in the sheets. You know Kirsten Baker is the first time I ever <laughs> saw a girl's vagina in a movie. Um, interesting. It's just a fact. And so, wait, what movie? Part two. I mean, you see, where's her vagina? Well, you see full like Steve Miner's an ass man. That's no, you true. see her. You see the whole. I'm killing you with. This you see episode. the full Monty. You see the full Monty. Uh, with part two. Uh, <laughs> wait, what? Jody is it? Jody Aronson from part four. I don't know. Um, who gets killed <laughs> in the? Uh, she gets killed in the raft. Let me double check here. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, that's She's a big great. one. Yeah, that's a big the one. Twins, obviously, in part four, and the nerdy girl in part four who loses her virginity, which is problematic unto itself, but you know, still hot. Part four in general has the most beautiful women. Um, no, 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 two. <laughs> So I think, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I, I finally narrowed down a top three. I think for me, I go Debbie Sue Voorhees from New Beginning, uh, and then Kelly Who from Manhattan, and my last one is from actually Jason X is uh, the the main girl in that who I've never seen in anything else, but I think her name is Lexa. Lexi Lexi Doy. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Oh, she's yeah. And Jason X, you know who I'm really into is the girl who gets her face frozen off and yep, smashed me too. in. I was so bummed that she doesn't last long, but that's like she she would have been up there for me. And that's also maybe up there is one of my favorite deaths in the series, too. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
she's seeing it. She shows up. She's like, wait, there's a dead body here. Let's check it out. (laughs) And then like, like 720 seconds later, she's dead. Yeah. Yeah. She's dressed like she's in the porn parody of Battlestar Galactica. I was going to say, dude, I kept writing Battlestar this whole fucking movie when I was taking notes. That movie does the entire movie. The fashion in that movie is just like complete porn parody. It's nuts. Like they no like they're just all dressed as like skimpily as possible. Like you think it's about to go in that direction, and it never does. And it's so Canadian. Everybody's oh. from like I, I kept looking up like people's like my who's who I know this person. They're like they're all from Canadian TV. Like, oh every yeah, every single person. Yeah, <laughs> like Farscape or like. Stargate Atlantis. Yeah, I think based on those three, you can probably tell that I have like a very specific type. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, double feature with what movie? Oh man, uh huh. You know what? Any movie from the series. Um, Jacob, you go first. You know what? To Brandon's point, I would love doing a Jason Goes to Hell and Freddy's Dead. Nice double feature. Oh man, that was like, that was that would be, be a ton yeah. <laughs> of fun. Just because, like, again, kind of like he was saying, like the way that these movies became almost like metatextual commentaries on the times in which they were made. Because you have uh, Jason goes to hell being the hard copy Jason. You know, it just here's we're fascinated with true crime. It's beamed into your living room every day. Uh, Creighton Duke could be a great bounty hunter. And then also it's just taking the franchise and being again with the jazz idea of like, what the fuck do we do with this now? Like it's passed through a whole movie studio, eight movies, and there's nothing else to do with this character. So we just made the hidden, but with like a slimy demon creature that body hops between like all the people that Jason Voorhees wants to kill. There's this weird mythology of like, uh, only from a Voorhees woman, can he be born? Only should he die? Whatever that means. And then the dagger, the Necronomicon, it's just, it's mashing everything together into almost like the Diplo remix of like nineties horror. Um, I would do that. And then like Freddy's dead does that too, because not only does it open with that whole idea of like, I don't know, like the, the town Freddy's from is like the Holocaust now. And no one goes there. Yeah. No one goes there. All the kids are dead he's like dying out of power because like, you know, nobody believes in him anymore. And he's hunting down like the last children from uh, the town. And then you have people like fucking Tom Arnold and Roseanne Barr showing up in like dream sequences to where it's just, it's playing to the camera. It's all mugging all Herschel Gordon Lewis, like bullshit of like, you know what this franchise is about. We're just playing for you. And they're they're both united by that idea of like, what if these are all like demon spirits inhabiting like normal people that drive them insane, that there's a greater cosmic, almost HP Lovecraft force behind the entire thing. And like watching them back to back could just be a ton of fun. Also, like I would love to get a like an original 3D print 
of Freddy's dead yeah. and watch all of that too, because like it's all bringing that, that same. Shit. Yeah, exactly. The, the technology, especially through the end where like, she's traveling through the dreamscape or whatever the fuck it is that Yafet Kodo puts her under and she's going to like attack Freddy. Like all that stuff would be so much fun on the big screen uh, with an audience who just wasn't completely compared, like prepared for it. I don't know. Could be fun. I would, I would love to see that. And especially with Freddy's dead. I mean, th- this term gets thrown around to the point of parody, but I think it kind of fits here for the middle section is it does feel Rachel, like Rachel Talalay is channeling some sort of like twin peaks, David Lynch vibe. Like oh, when, yeah. they f- when they first get to the town and everything, it's just, it's so strange. And, and, yeah, I, I I really love that that pairing because I think that they were both seen as like the death knell of each franchise. And I think so far removed from them, they're doing things that are a lot more interesting than they were ever given credit for. Well, like you can tack on Halloween five, too, to where like <laughs> you add. Well, all those kids feel like they're straight out of Twin Peaks, too. Like yeah. you have straight up a Bobby surrogate and the one kid just wearing a leather like jacket the entire time. It's just weird how dead. the yeah. the uh, movies took on the vernacular of the like eras that they were being made in. Brandon, what do you got for your double feature? So I was thinking about this and like I was going to go the easy route. I mean, I think the one I settled on is pretty easy, too. But I was originally going to go like something like Jason X and Event Horizon just because I. Oh, I, easy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, the one I was thinking a lot about is probably uh, New Beginning and Sleepaway Camp just because they're both so morally oh. repulsive. <laughs> like, But they're both just like a blast. Um, But yeah, I think those two really kind of go hand in hand together because. You just you you feel like you want to take a shower after watching both of those. Sleepaway Camp seems to get what Friday Thirteenth Five is going for, um, yeah, and runs with it. My my brother had never seen it, and it was his like baby moon. He came to visit Atlanta. I was like, hey, let's go see some movies. We saw that in cold in July. Back to back. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> what a weird double feature. Um, they're both playing like not the same theater, like a mile from each other. And he had never seen Sleepaway Camp before. And that is a movie that seems to understand the dirtiness and meanness of the Friday 13th franchise. Definitely. And in I the think, best way. And they both have like legitimately insane reveals. Like with. Oh, my God. It, like with one that, you know, people were so mad about that they brought Jason back in the next movie. And the other one might be the most offensive ending in movie history. <laughs> But, but I mean, it's, they're great. Like they're, they're great movies. Um, for me, uh, Jay was pointing at me. So for double features, I would do part four final chapter with the Boogans, which I mentioned earlier. And (laughs) so I've been pushing for a Boogans episode for a good period of time since I uh, met Jacob and I get not doing a whole episode on it. I get that the horror of the Boogans is subpar. It's this like turtle monster with tentacles. What I have shown to friends who like this movie, what is connected with me is the hangout portion. We were talking earlier about the hangout portion of a slasher film and 
the Boogans has a good 45 minutes of some really natural hangout time with these two guys who are basically working for a mine, uh, a miners company. They're not miners. They're helping to string lights for these miners. And then one guy's girlfriend and her friend come to visit. And it's just, it has some very natural, fun dialogue before the horror starts. The horror, again, is some of the worst horror I've seen in horror movies. But until that point, I love the characters. And I think that that lines up well with part four, final chapter, where you have maybe the best characters in the entire series of Friday the 13th. Just the most likable, most kind of nuanced or have kind of arcs into uh their journeys, but yeah, that's my, uh, my answer to the question. I like that. I, I, I like that a lot. Actually, I might have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so for a final question, it has been remade. Uh, sure. 2009 Brandon brought up his love for it. I agree with it. I think we all agree with the really special qualities of that movie. We are now, Fuck, 13 years past. And multiple legal battles. And multiple legal battles of Victor Miller uh, about these movies. I'm not going to say, does this deserve a remix? I think we'd all agree. I want We all want to see another movie. I got an idea. Okay. But how would you want to see this rebooted? That's, that's my question. How would you bring it back? That's my question, is how would you take where we're at now... And yeah, what would you do with the franchise? Any kind of style or wrapping it in a new modern kind of horror mythology, what would you do? That's tough because I, uh, I think we're kind of like, I, maybe I wouldn't veer too far from what made the series, you know, just the basic bare bones of it. Because I, I think we're kind of craving, at least I am, I don't want to speak for you guys or everyone else, but uh, just a return to a traditional kind of slasher. Because I think we're at a point where like even slashers are like, you know, the, the run up to every new Halloween movie is, oh, it's about trauma. It's about this. It's about that. And, you know, I mean, it would just would be nice maybe to get something that just felt like a completely pure throwback back slasher. And I think a, J- a new Jason movie could accomplish that really well. I think the only thing I would change is that the one thing I know Jason fans have been like really clamoring for, and I know that that fan film did it recently, but I think you got to do Jason in the snow eventually. Yes. I think that, yeah. So, um, and I, I, I hate to say, you know, it sounds so basic saying it out loud, but it, it's just the whole a, a 24 and whatever people think of when they think of like elevated horror and everything. I like a lot of that stuff. And I think a lot of it's great, but like, I think I, I just think a straight up, you know, 90 minute slasher film would, would kind of feel like a, like a re- really refreshing right now. <laughs> Well, it's kind of what makes X so special, right? Yeah. Is that he's throwing it back to just having fun making a movie like that and also using it as like a showcase for actual cinematic technique. Uh, I'm not saying that you use Friday the 13th to do that, but Ty West kind of sees 
or at least is on the same page that we are. Yeah. You know? To where like you move forward by just being like, how do we look back in a weird way? Yeah. I saw, um, I was at Texas Fratmare, this, uh, horror convention here in Texas in Dallas and, uh, Ryan Turek from Blumhouse pictures was there and, and people were asking him questions of like, what is the next step in horror films? And he said, whoever cracks the slasher film is the next thing. And I agree with that. I think, you know, the last person to crack it fully was Wes Craven and Kevin Williams, two people. Yeah, Kevin Williamson was scream. I don't think we've had in 26 years, someone who's figured it out as much as they did of like what the next push forward. Um, I think there are like interim films. I think that height, I think high tension. I think um, honestly, the Friday 13th remake is a solid one, but I don't think they're redefining what the slasher could be. Um, I know that for a long time, I actually knew a guy who was attached to do the found footage version of Friday the 13th. And it might've been the same one that was linked to the, the snow, but it's Is all that the Bruckner one. Yeah. So I, 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 we're not friends. I've met him. Very, very cool guy. But I think that was one of the ones he's attached to. And now he's doing Hellraiser and did Nighthouse. Well, and Shannon Swift did the Jason in the snow spec script. Too. Yes. Yes. And, and they did the Freddy versus Jason movie and the remake. Mm, right. Maybe. Brady Murray, you say? Oh, I was going to say Bruckner would that that's a great choice for that. Uh, I didn't know that he had was attached to a found footage one. And like, he's, he's one of my favorite uh, guys working right now. I, I love the ritual. I love the Nighthouse. Nighthouse was like one of my favorites last year. So yeah, that, that could have been really interesting seeing like a found Cause I think, you know, found footage, you know, it's up and down, but I think a Jason movie could really work, work that well, work like that because like, seeing that mask in a found footage setting would be terrifying. Well, some of the scariest moments I think in the, my favorite scary moment in the series is in part three and she is in the boat. Uh, she walks out. Uh, Chris walks out to the boat, looks back and you see Jason mask off pushing against the glass, the upstairs window. Yeah. And he's like, he's swatting at the window I think it's I think the scariest moment in the film, it's very natural and weird. Yeah. And then him walk, he busting through the door and he just looks so deformed and horrific. Fuck the like, you know, weird play in the first scene, first movies uh, jump scare of the mom popping out. It makes no sense. But I think more <laughs> stuff like that of just like, what would it be like to be in the shoes to kind of reclaim the terror of seeing someone even pre I like the use of the mask in the remake, but not the mask, but the, the uh, burlap sack in the first half of that movie, I think is much more. What the fuck am I looking at? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I would go with that. That's a great idea. I like that. I do wonder if the next like evolution is streaming though, to where like, because you have the fear street movies, who are essentially like a commentary on how slashers have evolved throughout the years and everything. Like if Friday the 13th actually emerges from its legal battle, I think it's only going to be in series style. 
I think where so it's too. almost like I don't think it's going to be like one long like 13 episode thing to where like you're just at a camp and you're you could do this, but I don't think it would work. And also like it's already kind of been done before with the Fear Street movies, but it's like I feel like every episode would almost have to be its own contained slasher movie. Yeah. To almost to where it's almost like the next evolution of legacy sequel to where you take a property that we already know. Friday the 13th, Nightmare, Halloween, etc. And you go, okay, everybody knows the history behind this. Like you know the mythos, blah blah blah. What if you did a 12 episode thing that expands on those ideas, but it's almost like year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, et cetera, all the way up to say you get like an eight episode uh, order is that everyone is a self-contained slasher that evolved the mythos behind the character itself like to me that would be kind of interesting to where you just get a new movie and like say you get a a paramount plus or a hulu or an hbo max that drops you an episode every week it would almost be kind of like getting a new slasher movie a week and you do that throughout the the summer or whatever that would be kind of fun into the dark, the Hulu series was the Blumhouse produced, mm-hmm. um, sl- basically horror movie a week, but a lot of them were slashers. I mean, um, they had the one that was basically the Pilgrim, one in the high school, and right. I-, I imagine that would be a way to do it. Where, but it, within one mythos of well, it's like you already have that with the MTV Scream, yes, uh, series, but they did that as whole like long form melodramatic storytelling to me, you almost have to play with that idea to a degree to where it's almost like, okay, well you have this, you have scream, everybody's familiar with it. How do you either evolve or uh, transmute that style of storytelling? Yeah. Well, Cause yeah, the scream show kind of in a way wrote its own, death ticket where it was saying at the first, I think it was the first episode is like, you can't make a series out of a slasher yeah. film. And I agree. You can't a straight up slasher film. And so they, they filled it with melodrama, teen melodrama, like teen wolf or uh, Riverdale like just with murder, with, with murder <laughs> stuff. And so they were very honest about their shortcomings, but didn't overcome them. Right. That's true. Right. That shows, that shows good for like a season and a half and it kind of runs out of steam. Yes. Well, this has been great. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Definitely. Love you as always. This was a blast. This was a ton of fun. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we do have some stuff coming up with you uh, next month. So that'll be great with some DTV action type stuff. But oh, people man. Are have to stay tuned <laughs> and keep checking in with Secret Handshake.
The first time I saw you was on the screen at Sebastian's house. Back then you were so much older than me, but now you're a child. Oh, I was wondering why you got naked when that boy started kissing you. I was disgusted, yet oddly excited. The feeling was completely new. Ooh. It made you laugh when he kissed your breast. I didn't get the joke. He got up a few moments later and left you all alone. As you lay there in the forest, I picture myself lying right next to you. You fell asleep, someone approached, I think it was your friend returning to you. You didn't have any time to move. Said and watched as he murdered you. I thought it was safe. We wanted to play your brother. We should leave now. We were led astray. The pastor would say, "Yo, your sin shall find you out." Of it all, your body lay motionless, and your face was covered in blood. And then your boyfriend came back looking for you. I started shaking 'cause I knew Ooh. we tried to warn him, but he couldn't hear us through the screen. Oh, what could we? As we made.